0: But do, uh, we, do
1: we need dangerous. lobsters that badly? Uh, no, I'm feeling guilty. If okay. we're talking about, do we need football that badly? Do we need lobsters and cod that badly?
0: I, I guess not. We do need you. roofs, I think. We do need roofs. We roof. do need roofs, yeah. Welcome once again to Free Associations from the Boston University School of Public Health, the Public Health, the Medical Journal Club podcast. For anyone who's confused by the latest health study, I am by why Clouds don't freeze. So apparently we have an answer to the question.
2: Apparently we do. This so is for fantastic. for anyone who doesn't,
0: re- didn't listen to the last episode, I brought up for the second time my obsession with the fact that I believe clouds should freeze because it's very cold up where the clouds is and clouds are made of water. And I do believe they do freeze. But Jess, you apparently have an explanation as to why you believe in your fantasy world they don't freeze. Go ahead.
2: This is totally out of my fantasy world. But I would like to just you know say thank you to my TA Erica Tietzel who is a MPH student here thanks, at SPH. Thanks, Erica. Erica just emailed me this morning and said, hey, wanted to say you know say hi. hope you're doing well. P.S. I looked up why clouds don't freeze, and here's the answer. And then I did some additional research, and I think it's I think it's correct. And okay. I said, whoa. And then she she proceeded to paste into an email some very technical language that then I I was like, oh <laughs> goodness gracious, Erica. It's at zero degrees Celsius, water becomes ice. Um, Concentration of water in the clouds is too low for the molecules. And I was like, this this was like flailing over my head. And so I said... I said to myself I said why don't I text my husband who's actually a physicist okay. and I was like he pr- and I never of course thought to ask him before as much as we've been talking about this over and over so I sent him a text this morning it, Is
0: that because he's a physicist but you think he's not a very good physicist is that what <laughs> oh,
2: you know, oh no <laughs> <laughs> we won't go there he works with nanomaterials Ooh, so very small. I, I, I you know if, I just if you're listening like, you know, that was a
0: joke that was, that was a definitely joke. A, joke. That was a joke
2: that was a joke but anyway so I texted him this morning, hi honey, it here's was. the here's the text, here's the text, okay, I'll okay. get some points back. Hi honey, do you know why clouds don't freeze? Like why they are not a sheet of ice in the sky when temperature is so high up in the sky or so low? And then I signed it XOXO. Nice, right? sweet. Okay, and he responds back as he typically does without any pleasantries and just says, there's a whole lecture related to this in my class. The short answer is that solid formation from a liquid is a process of nucleation and growth. For an ice crystal to form, it has to be of a certain size. You need to be pretty cold for ice to solidify from a spherical nuclei as it might have to in a cloud since there's no surfaces. I think this is the key. There's no surfaces because the sphere has a lot of surface area, and those water molecules don't want to stick around. In our freezer, for example, the ice typically solidifies on a surface, Mm. which makes it easier. It's called chemical kinetics. And then he linked me to Wikipedia pages. And another Wikipedia page for a process called nucleation, which comes along with a picture of <clears throat> they call it rock candy, <laughs> like rock candy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like no, we made that in, in
1: chemistry class. Okay. Yeah.
2: Okay. So enough. apparently this is a thing, and I said this is so amazing. Thank you with a heart.
1: Well, if I, if so, I, I'm not that I understand So it. wait a minute. Does it freeze or does it not freeze? He so he's given us a lot of freeze. technical jargon. He's, okay, I know,
2: does, which is kind of like so the jargon. Does it freeze or I have not? to say, even from Erica's <laughs> description, he's saying it does not. I think that one of the reasons is that there is nothing for it to freeze, freeze onto. To. Okay. There's nothing for it to attach but to. But, of course,
1: snowflakes also follow the nucleation. Oh. It's little particles of dust and then oh. they oh, water condenses but, oh. around them and <laughs> settles to the ground. Physicist guild but oh, Sure, right. I just But know they everything.
2: have to accumulate somehow, right? They're falling on the ground right. or they're falling onto something. I like the, I'm just thinking But how, of how the do they turn, they
0: turn into snow at some point in the they air? They turn
2: into snow, but then they solidify. And like, what
0: about, what about yeah. freezing rain? Because freezing uh-huh. rain falls from like the sky as pellets. ice. So where does right. that come from? God, so many unanswered questions. All right. I made a terrible joke the other day. My my wife
1: gave me an icy stare.
0: What? (laughs) Say that again? (laughs) I didn't even get that. (laughs) Nick got it. Shall we continue on? Okay. I would like to apologize to all of our collective spouses for this. No, I was all meant to be taken in jest, whatever was said. Okay. Anyway, I am Matt Fox from the Departments of Epidemiology and Global Health from the BU School of Public Health. I am joined by Dr. Jessica Liebler from the Department of Environmental Health at the BU School of Public Health. Welcome, Jess.
2: Thank you. And
0: welcome to your entire family. <laughs> and also joined by Dr. Chris Gill from the Department of Global Health at the BU School of Public Health. Welcome, Chris. Hello. Hello. And welcome to your entire family. Thanks. They're all glad to be here, too. I'm sure they are. And as a reminder, head on over to the Population Health Exchange website at www.pophealthex.org, which is BU's hub for lifelong learning. And also a reminder, we really would love another review ratings. We love the ratings, but a review lets us know how wonderful we are. And if it tells us how terrible we are, we just don't read it. So this is mixed methods you're describing. That's exactly (laughs) what I'm talking about. Yep. So now onto the show. So today in our first segment, which is our journal club segment, we are going to look at a study on gestational age and cognitive outcomes. So how, how old you are at birth? Is that, would that be a correct statement? How old you are at birth? You're, You're zero. Oh, okay. Well, Then in the second part of the podcast, which is our deep dive, we're going to talk about questions around authorship, something that is near and dear to all of our hearts. And then in the third segment, which is our amazing and amusing, we'll get into things that make us laugh out loud or we just found fascinating. All right, segment one. So in segment one, the article that we're looking at, it was published in the BMJ and entitled Gestational Age at Birth and Cognitive Outcomes in Adolescence, Population-Based Full Sibling Cohort Study by first author uh, Anders Husby, Husby of the Department of Epidemiology and Biostatistics at the School of Public Health at Imperial College London. I spent my sabbatical in 2019 at the Imperial College of London School of Public Health, but I fortunately didn't get to meet this person. So some headlines on this one. Premature birth linked to poorer school grades and adolescence, says Eureka Alert. Preterm birth tide to lower IQ and poorer school grades, says usnews.com. And lower grades in high school may be linked to being born prematurely, says MSN. So, Jess, can you—this uh, was, was a a a, a lot a study with a lot going on. So, can you talk us through the main points?
2: Sure. This is a study with a lot going on, and it has a lot going for it, I actually yep. think. Um, it's pretty cool. Agreed. So, so, just by means of background, briefly, there is significant literature showing that the prenatal period— is very important for many health endpoints later in life, specifically a growing literature on the developmental origins of chronic disease, which is looking to pinpoint specific periods of prenatal development that are associated with chronic disease risks that emerge in adulthood. And preterm birth is an established risk factor for many negative health endpoints, in part because some of the body systems have not finished completing development when the infant is, in fact, Born and development after birth in the postnatal period may not continue in the expected ways when babies are born prematurely. So in this paper, the authors are considering the specific association between preterm birth and cognitive outcomes— And they're doing this because for a number of reasons. First of all, this specific endpoint of cognitive outcomes has been difficult to assess in this relationship because of confounding and prior studies, they claim, as well as complexity in measuring cognitive endpoints across multiple domains of intelligence. And so I thought that was interesting, that one of the things that they contribute through this study is looking at cognitive endpoints through multiple different approaches. And these authors used a national population-based full sibling cohort, which we'll talk about in a minute. This was the design of their study. It was based in Denmark, which is probably one of the very few places in the world where such a study like this could actually be accomplished by linking all of these different kinds of data over such a long period of time. And so that was, that was pretty awesome. And so they conducted this study in Denmark to improve on the ability to account for multiple confounders, plus a more nuanced ability to consider cognitive functioning. They used the Danish Civil Registry System, which in Denmark is a national system that links medical records, health records, and school records. And in this system, they screened for full sibling pairs, and I think sometimes it wasn't just pairs, they were multiple siblings in the data, so not just pairs, but but, uh, sibling groups, born between 1986 and 2003 using this retrospective cohort design. And their final sample included a little less than 800,000 full siblings in their eventual cohort um, with approximately five and a half percent of them born before 37 weeks of gestation, which was defined in the study as preterm. After 37 weeks was considered full term. Then what they did, which I thought was really interesting, is they looked at the timing of of preterm, the extent that the baby was preterm. So they looked at less than 27 weeks, which they considered very early preterm, 28 to 31 weeks, which they considered early preterm, 32 to 33 weeks, late preterm, and then those that were born from weeks 34 by week up to week 42. So they did follow some some babies post-term if they had that data. They then looked at endpoints across three different metrics. The first two were scores that extended from a national school-wise standardized exam that students took at the end of their compulsory education in Denmark, um, which was taken by all children except for except for some, which we can also talk about in a minute. And this test, my understanding, is taken at the end of ninth grade, at the end of compulsory education in Denmark. And so they looked at mean grades in written language and math on this test. They also conducted a sub-study of... A smaller group of full sibling males who took an IQ test at the age of 18 as part of the mandatory military conscription process for Danish men. So they looked at these endpoints, written language and math from the Danish standardized test, and then a subset of results from this IQ test of men at 18 that was part of their conscription process. They ran many sensitivity analyses, including a notable one where they incorporated children in the study who did not take the school-based assessment and then imputed their scores. And they did this because of the assumption that students, that almost everyone took this standardized test at the end of ninth grade, and if they did not take it, it was mostly due to cognitive abilities. And so they were interested specifically in this group of children. They adjusted their models for sex, birth weight, birth malformations, parental age at birth, parental education, and the number of older siblings. And these were some of the confounders that they said that were not included, specifically maternal education, that had not been included in some of the prior assessments of the relationship between gestational age and cognitive outpoints. And then they compared adjusted Z-scores based on gestational age. And the use of the full sibling matching, which I thought was pretty cool, was was done to allow for adjustment of other unknown or unspecified family-level confounders. And they noted also that they re-ran their models with an approach of clustering, of covariates clustered at the family level instead of sibling matching, and that the overall findings were more or less the same. So what their findings indicated was that 34 weeks of gestation appeared to be this significant threshold of relevance across all three of the cognitive measures that they looked at. So children born younger than 34 weeks of gestational age had reduced mean scores in the written language, mathematics, standardized tests, And lower IQ compared to children born at 40 weeks. Children born between 34 and 39 weeks, outcomes were basically undifferentiated from those who were born at 40 weeks across these three metrics. And they had some really nice figures, at least demonstrating this visually. And they found a, a negative linear relationship with these measures starting in 27 weeks, which was the youngest gestational age of the babies in their study, showing that there was a steady, almost a linear increase from 27 weeks to 34 weeks, at which point these scores stabilized at a level equal to the babies who were full term. And the IQ points, which I think is the the IQ scores, is probably the easiest to contextualize compared to the mean Z scores for math and reading, they observed, the authors observed a reduction of IQ points um, of 4.2 points comparing babies born at 27 weeks to full-term babies and up to 3.8 points in their next preterm period and 2.4 points between the 32 and 33 week marker, which they claimed was a more or less linear relationship. And in one of the many sensitivity and parallel analyses that they ran, the authors imputed cognitive scores for children who did not complete the Danish standardized school-based assessments, and they imputed the 1% lowest standardized grade according to birth year under the assumption that children who did not complete these assessments were cognitively unable to do so. And they found an even stronger relationship, indicating that potentially a disproportionate number of children scoring in those imputed low levels were pre term. The authors conclude that cognitive outcomes in adolescence did not differ between those born between 34 and 40 weeks of gestation, but that significant deficits did exist among infants born before 34 weeks.
0: Yeah. Great, yeah. great cool. summary. Chris, there was a lot to like here. What what was your your take on this one?
1: Totally agree with both of you. I thought this was this was such a cool paper. Cleverly uh, thought through. Yeah. If I could sort of harp on the, the the one sort of salient point, which they even mentioned in the title, which is this full sibling cohort thing. And I, I think, Jess, you probably have a more elegant way or mad of explaining it than I do. But the, the, the basic idea is that you've got a child, you know, child one in the family who is born prematurely, and then you select families who had a second sibling who was not born prematurely. And so now you have, by comparing the premature and the non-premature child in the same family, you've eliminated all the unmeasured confounding that might exist in that pair related to the household and the rearing and all these other factors that would be fiendishly difficult to, to identify or measure. But now you don't have to identify or measure them because you've adjusted for them all by putting them into these pairs. And I just thought that was brilliant, actually. I was a totally brilliant idea to do that.
0: yeah, I agree. I mean, I don't I, w- I would quibble a little bit that they remove all the confounding because, of course, kids kids grow up in in the same household in slightly different. Have, ways. you know different different genetics, similar, but not the same. And, you know, a child born prematurely may be treated differently than a child not born prematurely, but by and large, they're growing up in roughly the same environment that's and right. with similar not the same genetics and right. so i agree to me that's that's one of the huge strengths here i also think you know they're they're doing this in registry data in uh, denmark so you've got you got the whole Everything. country right so so limited selection bias too yeah. i mean there is yeah. some potential because you do have the missing data, which has the potential. But they, they were very thoughtful about that, and they did a lot of sensitivity analyses. So I have some things that I could critique about this study, but I would put them all in the context of these are the kinds of things that I would write up if I were the reviewer of the study saying, here's you know, the ways I think you could improve this study, but overall I'm supportive of publication. So I think we could talk about some of those things, but I think we all agree this is a, this is a pretty impressive paper.
2: Yeah, no, I think one of the things, as I said, that was so impressive is that this couldn't be done in the United States to this level, for example, because of the lack of linkage of all these different types of records. The fact that you have an ID that then links you to health data and links you to birth outcome data and links to school data and then links to your military conscription. Amazing, right? Amazing. (laughs) And the power of that for research, you know, being able to have all of these disparate data sets linked It was just tremendous. Well, so I was like blown away by that. Yeah. One
1: other tiny little sort of methodologic pearl that I thought was nifty was their use of Z scores mm-hmm. around the, the exams. And this, this sort of like hit hit me in a weak spot because some numbers of years ago we had done a trial of a mobile continuing medical education intervention in Vietnamese HIV doctors. And one of the, the features was that we gave them an exam at the beginning and we gave them an exam at the end and we randomized them to get this intervention or not and then we wanted to see did their scores go up. But the the, the challenge we recognized very early on in this was that it is almost impossible to make two exams equally difficult, unless you have exactly the same, you know, questions. In which case, are you testing knowledge or are you testing memory of the first exam, which was only six months ago, right? And so they got around this by standardizing the average scores at, of every single year. And so that was in sort of another way of statistically leveling the field so that they could look at actual changes in the scores. And I, I thought that was that was clever and, and elegant and, and persuasive. And they also did that around the centiles of some of the other outcomes to sort of normalize all of these so that they're comparing apples and apples.
0: So let me ask you this. I mean, we're we're largely in agreement. I, I can, again, I can point to some things that, you know, I would have recommended doing differently, but we're largely in agreement. This is a good study. It's not a particularly surprising finding. No, that's right. true. So the question to me, and, and, and I say that not only because I, I suppose it's what I probably would have hypothesized, although I, I don't know that I would have said I know, you know, whether it's going to be a small effect or a big effect. So fair enough. I mean, there's still something to estimate. But there have also been prior studies, right? This was not the first study to ever do this. So I guess my question is: Do you think this has ended up in the BMJ, a pretty prestigious paper, because the methods were so good? In other words, it's not something we hadn't studied before; it's not something we didn't have have uh, a prior for. But this was the study, maybe that really actually helped us hone in on what we think the size of the effects are because they did it well.
1: Yeah, I think that's probably right, Matt. And and I'll, I'll come back to the biz, this business about sibling full sibling matching because that that to me is the is the is the added sort of secret sauce on this paper that differentiates it from what it's before because similar analyses in the past could always be accused of having some bias or confounding based on household rearing patterns and how do you get around that but by Matching it within siblings within the same household, they have largely uh, countered that argument. And so now I think we're getting much closer to a, you know, the shape of the true relationship, which admittedly was not all that different from what they had reported before. But now we can sort of say, yes, we are confident that the results are due to gestational age, not because of some hidden factor related to rearing.
2: I think one of the contributions of this paper is the 34-week threshold mm-hmm. that I think was really clear across all three of the endpoints that they measured. And I could see that being filtered into kind of clinical practice almost, recognizing that that's the age at which cognitive deficit would happen if the baby is born before. So maybe that being a threshold, thinking you know about ways to preserve the pregnancy until after that point, for example— I thought that was an, it, it. Was an interesting. I was wondering. Maybe this is a question for Chris. Which kind they of, do. Which the, they cli- do. Right. Yeah. yeah the, they okay. Do. The the clinical relevance of this particular age yeah, compared I mean, to thirty three weeks or thirty six weeks. Or this right. is where
1: I wish uh, uh, Julie Hurley he was here. She's a colleague of ours. Who's a pediatrician, who could probably something say something a little more sophisticated. But but you know they. W- it is very clear that the you know keeping the baby in as long as possible is is important in so many ways. Not just because the babies who are very premature are going to have premature lungs and are going to have struggle breathing, but because there are all sorts of additional sort of neurologic and cognitive issues associated with prematurity. And I think just as a mention, it's interesting that they truncated the analysis to sort of lump all the less than twenty seven week gestations together, mm-hmm. which is my guess is that. The main reason was that at that point, you having very, very, very few of these events. And so it's hard to parse them and to to cut them further. But at this point, it's also gilding the lily because it's very obvious at that point that the kids who were 27 weeks or, or below were so profoundly impaired on math and written and IQ tests that there was, you know, what else are we going to learn from that other than it's going to continue to get worse.
2: They did have some, they did exclude babies, I don't remember what the lower threshold was. Do you remember where they did exclude below some week for that, for that reason? Yeah, yeah. I don't
0: I don't know, but I, I was actually curious about this. So, you know, obviously neonatal and infant mortality is, is quite low in this setting, but amongst babies born less than 27 weeks, I would think it would be relatively speaking high. Right. And so, this presumably, no, am I wrong about that, Chris? I'm not sure I understand your question. Just walk it back for me. Wouldn't wouldn't being born very prematurely be associated with much higher mortality? Yes, it And is. therefore, yeah. there may, to a certain extent, be a survivor bias because at those youngest weeks of gestation, you know, they'd be born prematurely, but then you have to survive mm-hmm. long enough to get to the testing. Right. I, there's nothing you could— do about that as far as I could see. I mean, there may be some clever statistical approaches, but, but the, and I don't know that it's very large either. So I, I'm not trying to say that this is necessarily a huge problem, but it's something to think about.
1: Yeah. And in, and in fact, it, 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 you know, the authors did consider this because mm-hmm. one of the mm-hmm. sub-analyses they did, mm-hmm. which I, th- again, thought was quite clever, was to look at the cascade of, of clinical interventions or events that had occurred in these children's lives as a way of saying, you know, are can we explain it all based on gestational age, or is it all the things that happened after they are born that contribute to this? this sort of intellectual impairment and having adjusted for that, they still see that most of the effect is in fact explained by gestational age, not things that happened postpartum.
2: Right. And they specifically looked at number of major hospitalizations under the idea that if kids are hospitalized a lot, they're missing a lot of school. And so that could be, that could be what's causing this association. And yeah, no, no, I, it yeah. was, it was, it was nicely done. Yeah. Yeah.
0: Yeah, I, one the one sort of quibble was, and they don't totally do this, but I felt like they they probably put a little too much weight into statistical significance here because I do think, you know, there there, there is a pattern that is is very clear that becomes not detectably different the you know the, the farther along you get in the development, but there does actually seem to be sort of a a pattern of as you said, just decreasing cognitive scores with decreasing weeks of gestation up to a point, and then it sort of flattens out. But it sort of seemed like they, at least in the abstract, if I remember correctly, focused on the significant, you know, the place where you could determine significance. And I, I would quibble with that a little and say I think, you know, it is true that we can only find from a statistical standpoint where the inflection point is. But it, there appears to be some, you know, harm to being premature but not severely premature. It mm-hmm. also still seems to have some, you know, some harm associated with not nearly as much as being very premature. Yeah. That's
2: right. Right, and I was interested too in terms of the meaningfulness aspect of the differences that they found in the math and writing right. scores. I think the IQ points are maybe more easy to easier to understand and they were statistically significantly different, but it was unclear to me in the paper if that was at like a a grade level difference or kind of what was the impact of that for the child and their family, that yeah. deficit.
1: Yeah, so what what did you both make of the fact that the math scores were were disproportionately you know, more severely impaired than the language scores. I, know there's an, I, I didn't know what, what how to wrap my head around
0: that. Yeah, I didn't either. I, I felt like that would be the kind of thing where if you understood better, you know, language and math development in children, you might have a, you know, it might make more sense to me. I, I just didn't have the tools to be able to parse that, but it is noticeable.
2: I also, I, I, I don't know anything about these Danish standardized tests. And I wondered too, if knowing more about these tests would inform what it meant to score at different, to score at different levels or what the difference might be between the writing and the math.
0: Yeah. Yeah, I don't know the answer to that. I I did. The the other question I wanted to ask was uh, how do we interpret these results in light of what the two of you were discussing just a little bit ago, which is that this is a country where they are actually doing a lot to try and get those babies to, you know, stay in there. Yeah. As long as possible. And so this is not a scenario in which we're analyzing data in which babies are just, you know, doing whatever and we just see what happens. This is in the context of already presumably a lot of intervention, a lot of – intervention. I don't know what a lot of means, but, but, but a place where, you know, as much intervention as possible I mean. could be happening to try and preserve that such that, you know, does – I, I, I mean, do we interpret these results to mean that – there's probably nothing more you could do, at least in you know today's day and age, to get these kids to higher gestational ages. And therefore, really probably the main way that we interpret these findings is as a prediction measure. In other words, we identify that if you were born very prematurely, there may be knock-on effects in terms of your cognitive development, and therefore you may require early intervention. It's not that. The message is, therefore, we are going to get these these kids to be longer gestational age because we probably can't do all that much more at this Mm -hmm. point. I, (laughs) I don't know that's true. I just sort of, that's where my mind goes to.
1: Yeah, I mean, if I sort of compare this with the the work we do in Zambia, where we you know follow infant cohorts and the, the rates of prematurity appear to be so much higher than what we encounter in the United States. And so you know the issue that we're describing here in Denmark, where you know presumably it's the Cadillac of prenatal care, uh, some of the best and the best and the best on the planet, and you know and their rates of extreme prematurity based on these data is very very low. But you know nonetheless there are a lot of babies being born in Denmark. And so, uh, you know, you can, you can measure this effect, but the the implications of this are really like, I'm thinking about, well, what about in global health where the, the prematurity issue is, is much more significant. Yeah. And what does that add up to on a continental level in terms of all these children who are surviving and going on and having, you know, damaged brains for the rest of their lives? Uh, it's, it's kind of a, you know, it's an, it's a terrifying thought to be and honest.
0: So. Absolutely. Absolutely. But, but so I guess then my question would be, Can we interpret this solely as the effect of prematurity, or do we think this is the effect of prematurity plus any interventions that were were designed to try and prevent the prematurity, Uh, Uh, or subtracting the things that they did afterwards to
1: kind of to support these kids who were born prematurely? Either
0: one, right? I mean, presumably there there is the potential that some of the interventions that we might try to increase the duration of the pregnancy might also have some harms. Right, and so uh, yeah. hard to say exactly. I, mean, it's, it's, I doubt it's, there. I doubt it's there possible. much. It's I doubt possible. there much.
1: But I mean, it, it, you know, w- one can sort of imagine a crazy thought experiment where, you know, a baby is taken out of the womb and kept alive in some perfect environment that approximates the womb. And is allowed to then develop in this other environment that is not a, does not put them at risk of being exposed to germs and pathogens, and the immaturity of their lungs doesn't matter because they're still in some environment where the surfactant, you know, is you know they don't have to worry about their lungs collapsing and developing respiratory distress syndrome. So you know, sort of you 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 wonder like. Is it the gestational age per se? Probably not. My guess is that, it's, is that when a, a child comes out so early, they're suddenly exposed to all these massive stressors and insults in the environment that they would have faced you know, 10 weeks later if they had made it to term and been that much more resilient. But because they're coming out so early, they, they lack that resilience. And so they take all these hits from infections. They take all these hits because their lungs are immature and collapse and they spend the first two weeks of their lives with some degree of hypoxia. Mm. Mm -hmm. and the brain is just like starved for oxygen. My guess is it's not the gestational age per se. It's the fact that so much of that period is spent being bombarded by terrible environmental assaults. And that's what probably leads to this. But again, I I, I really wish we had a a, a proper (laughs) neonatologist here to to, to be more sophisticated about this. I think it's a
2: combination. I think it's a combination of the stressors that the infant would experience after birth and also that systems are not finished developing. Right. And so it's a combination sure. of those things, that the body's under a tremendous amount of stress at obviously an in, in age where maybe that was unexpected. And also that there are systems that are, that are just not ripe yet to, to, be, you know, to be functioning outside of the womb. I only know about this in the context of kidney disease because of my work in Central America. Kidney development Extends through weeks 36 and 37 of pregnancy. And so babies that are born preterm and likewise in Central America, there's really high rates of babies that are born preterm. Their kidneys are just not done. They're, right. they're, they're, not, they're not done ready. developing. They're just not ready. And so whatever assaults that happen later, it happens on a kidney that didn't fully develop. Yeah. So, I, I mean, I was reading this study from a similar perspective that you were with the understanding that whatever gaps we're seeing, this is a highly privileged population in terms of access to care and access to obstetric care, access to interventions for the babies after birth, that this is almost the floor in terms of the difference that you might see in other contexts between yeah. prematurity and babies born at term, that this is maybe the minimum effect that yeah. you would see given yeah. the context sure. of this country.
1: Yeah, I think you said that much more eloquently than me, so thank you. That that. that, that generally the trit of argument I was I was trying to express, but but you're, you you put it so well, Jessica. I mean I we in the infectious disease world and the respiratory pathogen world, you know, think a lot about maternal antibodies. And as you know you probably both know that most of the maternal antibody transfer occurs in the third trimester after twenty-eight weeks. And so you can again see, you know, here is another mechanism sort of thrown in that puts these kids at tremendous risk yep. of when they yep. come out too soon. So
0: yeah, now we want to avoid Great study. prematurity at all costs. I, I think we all agree. Really nice study, well done to these to these authors. So let's let's then move on to our second segment. So we're going to look at a study in the from the BMJ from 1996 and Chris suggested this article and I think at first when we first looked at it thought, well this kind is great. Old. And then we saw it's from 1996 and thought, well, is it really relevant? And then we thought, actually, it is because we actually want to sort of see what, what's, changed. what's changed since <laughs> then. So the, the article was entitled The Vexed Question of Authorship, Views of Researchers in a British Medical Faculty by Opal and colleagues. And basically get at the idea of, you know, you've got to publish in academia if you're going to succeed. But, you know, that sort of came with all kinds of negative consequences, such as just putting people on papers just for the sake of getting your you know name on things. But people who had nothing to do with it or getting people to write papers. Fox to my, my paper to get it published. Exactly. <laughs> you know, writing is a exactly. success. Exactly. Kind of so in 1985, the International Committee on Medical Journal editors published criteria for authorship based on The principles each author should be able to defend the work publicly, which I'm into that. What's that? I'm into that. I haven't even gotten through it. We're already to the point. No, because I'm into that sort of right. I mean, we are in a world now. Where research has become very spe- like you need a lot of very specialized skills, and it isn't always possible for every person to be able to defend every piece of a paper.
1: True, but they're but okay. But, but at we, the same we, we, time, we've jumped way ahead. Yeah. but but okay, we'll come back to the we'll come back to the beginning after this is like a Michael J. Fox moment. But if, if, if I I think sort of in in big picture terms, if we're saying.
0: Nick had to explain to me the Michael J. Fox reference. You were <laughs> referencing Back to the Future. Back to the Future, I didn't right? Get it. That was yeah I I didn't get get it. over people's heads. Right. It went over mine. Nick had uh, to Nick, explain it to me. Do you know about
1: Back to the Future movies? Nick okay. explained it to me. <laughs> okay.
2: Like telepathically just not He
1: whispered to <laughs> I saw him making a gesture and it, it caught me in my tracks yeah, and it yeah. just stopped okay, me. Sorry, dead. go ahead. Anyway, but uh, what, I, what I was going to say is like, you know, there, there are sort of holistically you can say like if you have a co-author on your paper who if like pigeonholed at a bar could not possibly explain what the paper was about or what the point was, they should probably not be on the paper.
0: Yeah, I, I, I would so, certainly agree with that. I mean, but yeah. but can you explain sort of all the technical details? Yeah, right? you Can don't you explain mean that. the modeling details? I mean, this is uh, where it gets papers. tremendously yeah.
1: m- Muddy and, yeah. mur- and murky. Yeah. So let I me mean, let,
0: let's go okay. back to let's go so, back to so, the future. Here, so the basic idea was, the, was three the, criteria. Yeah,
1: so Back da, 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 to the Future in 1997. Future. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I remember, when, when, <laughs> how old were we when they came? Was it 1985 mm. or something? Well,
0: first of all, the we criteria are, we are and then the there's this
1: paper. I, I was much older back then.
0: Yes,
2: mm. uh, I was in high school. In it was in the 80s. <laughs> uh,
0: Nick, what, what year? what You you know all things. What year was Back to the Future the movie? No, no. When did it come out? When did the movie come out? Oh, That's man, a much more complicated know. question it was the, yes, it you happen? should ask your graduate students yeah I should exactly. maybe
2: maybe they will they will email me and with this answer in after this time. episode right I heard there's right, this thing right.
1: called Google. we could check it out. <laughs> Is that new? It's um pretty new. yeah huh. Apparently it answers yeah. all sorts of questions. <laughs> you just type into the keyboard thing.
0: Can and I can t- I get that with my you. my Gmail account? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, I got that too. Okay. So the idea of the paper was that they wanted yeah, the, these folks wanted to determine whether people knew what these new all.
2: <laughs> oh. <laughs> wait, but so this just 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 to clarify Keep as going. we're getting I very quit. goofy. <laughs> just to clarify, so these these this paper was written in 1997, and they were asking people in 1990s. 90, okay, 96. They were asking people in 19. 96. Ninety-six. What they thought of recommendations that came out in 1985. Basically,
0: whether or not they okay. knew they existed, what they were. So yeah. in other words, and most of them didn't. Did they know what the criteria that the journals like were saying were later. required? Ten years later, okay. were required okay. for authorship. Okay, and mostly did, did to did give not. away the punchline. They interviewed seventy academics. And research staff from the faculty of medicine at university of newcastle and found as chris says that most of them didn't and to the extent that they did uh, many of them thought i think that they were not you know particularly they, they were didn't like all of them per se and so i guess the question is do you think this still holds true today in other words have we gotten better at getting the message to people as to what the criteria for authorship are and then assuming that they know which I'm I'm not assuming, but if they do, do they follow them?
1: Yes, no, yes. No. Yes, they... N- Maybe. No. I don't think so. <laughs> My recent experience is they don't know. People they don't, don't know. know. And if they know, they don't follow them. And if well, they know, they don't follow them. people have different
2: criteria. I mean, I think even among faculty or even among collaborators I've worked with, I think people have different criteria for what constitutes authorship. And yeah. everyone kind of has their own set of rules and and it's hard because research is really complicated now. I mean, any given project has people in the laboratory, has people in the field, has statisticians, has you know the Epi people with study design, has a number of students and staff data people. Collectors, data data e- enterers, interviewers. interviewers. And, yep. And so database
0: developers.
2: Right. And so it's really difficult sometimes to constitute what authorship is and then also difficult to expect that every one of those folks who is an author would know everything. Every element of the study
0: yeah I, I think there's yeah. no, we're never going to get to the point at which everybody could know every element and be able to defend every element but I would agree with your general point Chris everybody who's listed on the paper should be able to defend the general concept of the paper if you, if you if you can't even say what the paper was about and you know why basic decisions were made, it's hard to say that you are at the level of being able to be an author but, there are also cases where it's it's you know it's it's not always clear like so if if somebody has painstakingly developed a novel database that they then allow you to use for your research, but that's all their contribution. I mean, they'll read the manuscript and edit it, but they don't really contribute intellectually in any way. They're not framing the hypothesis to the or question the or- the, the analysis any of those things does that person deserve? To be I mean is do we are, are do we acknowledge the contribution of the novel data sets, right? I'm not talking about, you know, mm-hmm. just sort of putting somebody on because they could they could get access to a bunch of data. I'm saying they, you know, linked together they you know, curated novel data, the data, they curated like, it, they cleaned like, it, all right. those things that would make it novel. Do right. they deserve to be on it? Maybe. But it
1: it's a, it's a it's definitely in the gray zone there. I would I'm agree. Aware.
0: I would agree. I'm not See, sure.
2: I, I feel like if the research couldn't happen without that contribution, if you couldn't have done the study without that data set, then I would say yes.
0: So the research, I would say, couldn't happen without the data collectors. Should the data collectors be on there? Maybe. I, I'm not maybe. clear. Like, maybe. Right. Yeah, maybe. Maybe they should. Yeah. But I don't think they would meet the criteria that are no. laid out in the no, they definitely would not. Did but anyone, the the anyone people who were interviewed
2: them? in this study kind of push back on these criteria. Did yeah. you see they did a they series did. of qualitative interviews with these folks and yeah, this is a, a, a lot, lot really of them said yeah said these criteria. So there, there's three criteria that came out in 1985. Yeah. Um, criteria for authorship that conception and design or analysis and interpretation of da- of, of data and drafting the article or revising it critically and final approval of the version. And so even, you know, in 1996, researchers were saying, but there's all these other functions yeah. that are really important outside of these three that yeah. are excluded and that these, these criteria might systematically exclude students from authorship and staff people from authorship and data collectors, as you were talking about.
1: Yeah, and, um, and one thing we should add is that the ICMJE committee – is not saying that you must have met one or more of these criteria. It is saying they said you must have met all three of these criteria right. yep. and that yeah. is a very high standard so, so like no, you right. raise the issue right. of students like is, is a student who you brought on to like you, you've got this analysis it's a great analysis you don't have the bandwidth to do it you go find a crackerjack student who knows a lot of SAS and EPI who's looking to do something cool and you say here's this project idea I have go execute the plans. So they do that project and then they write the paper do the analysis write the paper and then other people that contribute to that but the problem is they according to this, they didn't it. conceptualize right. the paper because it's right. it your idea does that now deprive them of, of authorship? I mean, that well, that seems to be like taking it way to an extreme and just so. not practical anymore.
0: I don't think that's, I don't think that, I don't think these results or are, are these uh, recommendations are typically interpreted that way because there's typically one or maybe two people who ever conceptualize a study, in which case that would imply there really don't, should only be two authors. Right. And, and I, I think we, we've all, agree. we would all agree that that is, Too in much. our field, uh, untenable. Yeah. Um, and then you see these papers, like these genome-wide you know, association studies that people pull together, authors, and you literally. get just pages and pages of authors, and and or the global burden of disease studies where you just get all these authors. Did every one of them conceptualize it? No. So I, I don't think they're interpreted quite that way, but I see why you're saying that. And it does does kind of basically say
1: that the entire field has agreed to ignore these criteria because we really literally do not pay attention to them anymore. And we feel like if we had tried to do so, we would feel very awkward about it and bad and guilty and feel like we were cheating our colleagues by doing so. If, you know, to be so pure in this just seems to be, you know, almost farcical to me.
0: So why, so, okay. So then, then let's back up. Why were these criteria put in place, and were they put in place for the right, for good reasons? I mean, at the time, they probably were. Because, I mean, it, have we gotten to the point where we would say we'd reevaluate things and say, you know, data collectors are just as important to the completion of the work as the the PI? I mean, in terms of you know being able to accomplish this, their names should be on this paper, even if they are not at the level at which they could they could completely explain what was done. I I, I don't know.
2: I, I feel like these criteria were put it's interesting so these were criteria that were also put in place for medical journals and we could discuss if we think public health research is different or epidemiologic research is different in any meaningful ways or not but it seems like these were put in place to deal with bloat that as it became more and more important to have lots of publications you could say okay I'm putting out a paper I'm just going to put on all my friends as co-authors and all the people in my department and my department chair and you know we'll just have 50 authors and, and that's fine and, and then everyone, happy. everyone's happy everyone gets a new publication on their CV. So it was kind of to deal with that yeah. bloat, you know, that kind of bloat in the authorship. But then the, the flip side is exclusion, which is, I think, where we were maybe before the bloat, where the papers were more likely to have one or two authors. They were typically all men. And anyone who was involved in the research in any way downstream from the conceptualization was not an author. And so now it's kind of like, I, I think there's more of an, include, at least in public health, there's more of an inclusive approach and recognition of the diversity of contributions, but it kind of leads a little more towards that bloat factor. Like I also have papers that have 12, 14 co-authors and they don't all contribute equally. And I know that as the PI, and I know that not every single person could defend the statistical method that we chose or any of these, you know, field research decisions, but they contributed in some way that that was important to the final product coming together.
0: I I agree with you. I mean, I think that it makes, and and I have to say, I've changed my views on this. I originally just sort of took these principles as, as dogma and said, no, you know, authorship should be very limited. And I have since realized that's it's actually problematic. I'm much more sympathetic to the idea that we should be more inclusive the less well-paid somebody is, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. I mean, because those are often the people who are doing probably the stuff that is, you know, it is just essential. I mean, it, it. you know, we don't get the data without data collectors. When you get to the higher levels of, Pay, then you are probably in the situation where you're including people just for the sake of including them, because those are the people who probably have the expertise to be able to take full responsibility for all of it, but don't because they're just, they don't really know what, what is going on in this paper. They were just put on there. And there I have, I would have a problem with that. So it's mm-hmm. sort of I have a problem with it at both ends. And I don't I don't know what to what to make of that. But you know, there are, there are places where you know the you you put the department chair on your paper whether they had anything to do with the work or not I mean that just seems to me absurd so I wouldn't want to support that not not I'm not opposed to including department chairs in your research I'm just saying <laughs> you, don't do them just yeah, right you don't put on there yeah you don't right. put them on there just because they were your department chair so I, I'm I, I want to be probably a little bit more exclusive at that end but on the other end I want to be more inclusive so
1: yeah, yeah. I mean I I have Oh, I'm curious if you, if you, if either of you, my guess is probably yes, have found yourself feeling rather uncomfortable about the inclusion or potentially exclusion of, of individuals as you're sort of wrestling with these these issues. I know I have recently, in fact. Absolutely. Yeah.
0: Oh, yeah. I mean, I think this comes up. All the time. Uh, yeah. And, you know, we're working on a study now and we wrote a, a protocol paper. It's it's for a trial. So there's a lot of people involved. And, you know, we've had people who have come in, made really important contributions to the study in terms of it being able to actually function and get off the ground. And these are people who may be, you know, at the study coordinator level at the moment, but have aspirations to build a career in academia. It's of value to them to be on a paper and they've had strong contributions, but then they move on. Do we just say, oh, well, you know, you weren't there when the the data came in. So your contributions are not going to be acknowledged I, I I don't want to do that
2: it's an interesting question too of whether or not you as a researcher advocate for your own authorship at all you know I feel like I've had this situation where I have felt like I should be included because mm-hmm. of contributions mm-hmm. especially on the intellectual side to the conceptualization of the project and and I typically don't advocate, you know, and send someone, and either I'm not around by the time an analysis, you know, whatever, because I'm doing something different, or I see it with students too, or with program coordinators. And the question is like, and I never know how to approach someone and say, hey, remember me? Like I, uh, yeah, without sounding obnoxious.
0: Yeah. I think there's a bigger problem there that you were put in that position to begin with, right? That, that the person who used your intellectual labor didn't acknowledge it and you had to go and ask for it is the real problem. Well, this
2: happens. I think this happens frequently to junior researchers that you're involved in early conversations. This happens. This has happened to me many times where you're involved in early research conversations and then you are subbed out for someone senior in the actualization of the project. Mm. And right. And I think there's no claim to authorship in that circumstance, but I think a, I think as a junior researcher, there is a jockeying for your role in a project at times. And, and, you know, and it's kind of an issue of when do you say, when do you lay claim to your intellectual contributions and when do you let it go? I think mm-hmm. you so lay I
0: claim yeah. your intellectual contributions yeah. when you have intellectual contributions. I mean, I think right. like, into the power dynamics. Yeah, and, the I, I agree. and You start I agree. to wonder,
1: and is the fight worth of, you know, brave. if I win this battle, have I lost a war? Yeah,
0: you it's know? a good
2: point. And you don't want to come across as obnoxious and a bad colleague. And no, so yeah, but you no, also I think,
1: shouldn't yeah, be right. taken advantage of. Is, is this more common if you were a, a, a woman yeah. researcher? I think it might, or, it might or be. I don't know. I haven't conducted any
2: research on it, but I think there are certain... You know, these, these are kind of big issues for junior people if you're included yeah. or not included on a research paper, especially larger scale ones. And it's not always clear what to do if yeah. you're, you know, if you're in that group and you don't know exactly what your role is.
0: So somebody who won't, I won't name them on this podcast mm-hmm. has said to me, has reminded me many times that, you know, authorship, but credit more generally, not specifically authorship, is something that is not diminished the more people claim it. Right. So the there is no harm to I like that. Including being more inclusive, again, within the limits of what is within actual, some boundaries. Within what yeah. is actually a contribution, but that what is the harm to allowing more people who actually contributed to be listed as contributors? You I don't agree with that. It doesn't reduce your you know, your ability to also claim the work. I, I it just seems to me yeah, you know, being a good citizen would would mandate that. I hope, I hope I have actually done what I'm saying here. I know there were times in early in my career when I didn't feel this way, and I know I wouldn't have. But I hope that since then, you know, it isn't a case where this is what I'm saying. But when it actually comes around to it, I don't even think about somebody who maybe had a contribution early, and I just did, you know, moved on and didn't think about it. I suppose that is entirely possible. But I would hope that I wouldn't leave somebody off just because it was sort of like, eh, well. Let's just move on. I don't
2: know. Uh, I think think also part of it is that the acknowledgements component of a paper really has no meaning.
0: I don't even even do them because (laughs) I I often feel like they are more for us to to say thank you to somebody who's never going to read this. I mean, we we often will thank the participants, right, where they obviously can't be Mm -hmm. authors, and that seems appropriate. But at the same time, like thanking specific people, I, I don't know. I also worry sometimes that people like thank somebody to get their name into the acknowledgments to say they you know, they sort of gave us feedback kind of thing so that it, it gives it a bit more, oh, this paper's kind of already really been peer-reviewed mm-hmm. by such and oh, such an gosh. important person. That's, see, that I
1: is that is very self-serving, yeah. isn't it? I yeah, I do that.
0: worry that – I'm not saying people do that. I'm saying I worry that it I bet will come they do off do that. that way I bet if they do I do, if do I, that, that. Yeah, I bet it's yeah. every, every so angle
1: I, you can imagine can be exploited. Sure. Has been. Sure. Can, can we Before we move off on this yep. topic, let me just ask – you one more odd permutation which is how you deal with co-authors who died before oh. Oh. the paper was written yeah i've <laughs> That's happened to me twice in the last year, in fact.
0: Yeah, I don't think it's ever happened to me, but I, I I know people it's happened to. I think the answer is you include them.
1: I mean, I did. You include them. But according to the you know the criteria, I, that would be not allowed.
0: Yeah, I don't. Because they did
1: not have an opportunity to approve the final version of the paper because they were dead. Include them.
0: I, I mean, I've definitely seen, first of all, I've seen it happen. I, I've seen lots of cases. No, lots of I've seen cases. In fact, I saw one just the other day. Or say it was. I mean, a, I'm
1: pretty sure uh, they would have agreed with it. Yeah, but well, you know, technically, I, I, they didn't have a chance. I say include. I I agree with you. But a- another example of where you know you can't apply these criteria. These these are aspirational, right? Of course. You know, they're they're trying to steer us in 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 a slightly more specific way than uh, this fellow. They quote uh, Hewitt. They actually <laughs> give a lovely quote from. Dr. Hewitt, I assume, from 1957, who said, Thou shalt not allow thy name to appear as a co-author unless thou hast some authoritative knowledge of the subject concerned, hast participated in the underlying investigation, and hast labored on the report (laughs) to the extent of weighing every word and quantity therein. So very biblical of him. Anyway, uh, we get the idea.
0: (laughs) We get the idea. All right. Let's move on <laughs> to our you. last Dr. segment. Dr. Hewitt. Let's move on to our last segment Our amazing and amusing. We are, we're long on time, so I'm gonna go first and I'm gonna go quickly. So I I just wanted to pass on this paper from the BMJ Christmas edition. That is, I think, is is, you know, the BMJ Christmas edition is generally funny. This one I think is actually a bit more serious. It it was sort of written in a funny way, but I think it's a it's a serious paper. It's written by a group of the BMJ statistical editors entitled, On the Twelfth Day of Christmas, A Statistician Sent to Me. And it's basically a list of their 12 things that they would like to see from people. And I thought they were just a, you know, again, it was it was a BMJ Christmas edition, so it's lighthearted, but I think it's a serious message. And so I thought it was just worth passing these on. So they say, they they write this all in the form of the first day of Christmas, a statistician said to me, and these are the things that they would be saying. Number one, clarify the research question. Number two, focus on estimates, confidence intervals, and clinical relevance. After my own heart. Don't focus on statistical significance. Carefully account for missing data. Yep. Do not dichotomize continuous variables. Mm-hmm. Oh. Consider nonlinear relationships. Sometimes you can. What? I, I do
2: that so- because sometimes. Sometimes you, you have to to we get We do at the it all the time. We right? do it all the
0: time, but we, you lose information and you sometimes create uh, additional biases that Maybe way. Maybe they should say thou no, shalt mostly not. Okay, mostly <laughs> Unless not. Unless it's better that you should. Quantify differences in subgroup results. That one I have a little bit of an issue with, actually, because I I think it's I we we should do that in cases where it's justified and has a uh, an a priori hypothesis. But I think we run into problems when we do that too much. But anyway, consider accounting for clustering. Then you start five gold rings. Exactly. (laughs) Interpret I-square and meta-regression appropriately. Okay, probably we're getting into the weeds here. Assess calibration of model predictions. Okay, we're getting okay, into a okay, lot of okay, okay, specific okay. things. But this point, is a go.
2: statistical Christmas. Yeah, I'm not going to
0: go through all of them, but the point is, Merry you know, Christmas like some of those basic things. Like, make sure you have a good research question before you go to a statistician. Oh, Don't dichotomize variables when there you know there's a linear, non-linear, or a linear relationship. You know, there's, a, there's a trend going on that you can quantify, and don't lose that information, you know, Focus yeah. on statistical, uh, Do don't, right, don't focus on statistical significance, things like that. So I just thought it was a nice article. Chris. All
1: right. I was, as many of you uh, probably were, shocked and dismayed at the uh, cardiac arrest of DeMar Did uh, yeah. uh, um, I get his name? Hamlin. 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 DeMar Mar- Hamlin. Hamlin. Uh, uh, in the football uh, game a couple O'Bils. weeks ago. And, th- you know, relieved, as I'm sure we all were, at his full recovery.
0: I, um, I have to say it was one of the most uh, devastating Did moments. You see, were you watching, were you watching, yeah, it, watching it? Yeah, I was watching it, and I love football, but I Me hate too. football, and so yeah. it's it's very hard to
1: <laughs> Well, I don't know where, where my presentation here is going to go with that because I was very curious to know how dangerous is football.
0: I, I think you might, for, for anyone who is not maybe in the U.S., you might need to explain what happened.
1: Uh, well he was he tackled another player on the other team so he did the hit and then they all went down in a heap and then he stood up and then he went down hard bang and just collapsed and he was pulseless and they had to defibrillate him and do CPR in the field. And then he was whisked off to the cardiac care unit where he, you know, recovered after a couple of days and, and, you know, it was apparently fine, but it was a terrifying moment that was on national TV. Millions of people watched this guy have a cardiac arrest on television. And I think a lot of us thought you know, you know, he
0: had died. We
1: thought he had died. Right. So it was, it was quite a, you know, it was a, a terrifying moment in sort of the American zeitgeist. So anyway, I was curious afterwards, like how many people die playing football and I, Stumbled across a report. Didn't stumble. I looked for it and found it called the annual (laughs) survey of football injury research, which goes all back to 1931 and tabulates all the deaths that occur at different levels of play, like middle school, high school, college, and pro ball, all the way back to 1931. And it's a very interesting uh, read. But it led me to a slightly different place. But but before I do, I I just wanted to, to highlight a couple of the statistics that I thought were really shocking. Which is that since 1966, 1966, there have been 362 deaths in middle and high school football, but in pro ball seven. So, so, but there's many more people playing high school Part ball. Part of that is a yeah. numbers game. It's it's a, it's a much bigger numbers game. Yep. But when they actually correct for that and look at rates, it actually is interesting that the high school mortality rates are slightly higher than the pro mortality rates. And then if you look at spinal cord injuries, it's much 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 higher in high school than it is in, in pro ball, mm. which I don't understand why because you would think it was much rougher, but uh, nonetheless. And there was a there was one year in here that was particularly grim where there were like something like 40 or 60 deaths in a single year in high and, school. And, no, this this was like in, I think, a 1930-something or other. But in, so in high
0: school football in, or, or all uh, football? In all
1: football. Oh. In all football. At any rate, the, the final number that came out of this report um, in terms of the overall deadliness of America's favorite sport is, uh, for pro ball at least, is 0.5 deaths per 100,000 players per year. So that is the number. So it is a it is a measurably slightly dangerous game. I don't know how that compares with with hockey, which would be the obvious comparator of uh, another very rough game, but probably higher than that for uh, other reasons. But I was then like, okay, well, how dangerous is that on a on a relative scale compared with other things that people do? And so I found this this report from with data from the you know the National Labor Statistics people, yep. looking at the most dangerous professions in the world. Or, like, I guess it's probably America. And I'm curious, would either of you like to hazard a guess as to what the number one, two, and three most dangerous jobs are? Timber. In, timber is number two. Very That's good. My, that would be my guess. So, lumber, lumber, police, the, fire. Uh, police and fire. They are. Police and fire is not on the top 10.
2: Construction.
1: Construction, and specifically, what kind of construction? What kind of job in construction is the worst of all? Oh.
2: Climbing high on things? Yes, roofers. Yeah, roofers. Okay. Roofers. Yeah. That is number
1: three on the list. Roofers falling off wow. roofs would be the obvious reason why yeah. they die, and then the number one most
2: dangerous Farmers. job of
1: all is fishing.
2: Oh, fishing! And yeah.
1: including like you know, oh, America's sure. dangerous captain and right, the crabs right, fishing. Right. So now you know. Remember that the uh, the the death rate for football was point five for hundred thousand players per year. Anyone want to guess what the mortality statistics are for fishers?
0: So it's 0.5 per 100,000 for football. I'm going to go with three per 100,000. Three. So about 10 times higher.
2: I'm going to go even higher, like 30.
1: 30.
0: Okay. The actual
1: number is about 140
2: Mm -hmm. per 100,000. Per (laughs) 100,000. So
1: 250 times higher risk of dying if you are a fisherman than a football player. And I don't think they get paid as well. No. Now you could say, and not be flippant about it. I mean, fishing is is you know people need fish. It's you know it's sort of a necessary job, and football is for pleasure. So why accept any risk? But and I was actually stunned at how uh, comparatively safe football was. What what about roofing, lobsterman?
0: Well, uh, yeah.
1: Oh, and do you want to know the numbers for roofing? Uh, So loggers uh, in the you know timber industry is about ninety, and for roofers is about fifty. Wow. So, wow. Fifth, so so 500 times higher than for football players is yeah. roofing. Roofing. Yeah. Wow. In fact, did I get the math wrong? 145 times uh, divided by uh, 0.5 is, is, is 250. So for roofers, it would be about um, 100 times higher.
0: Oh, boy. Well, mm-hmm. and then definitely not. Wow. wow. Anyway, the the numbers kind of. Not going on my yeah. roof.
1: Yeah. I'm Second career as a summer roofer Summer job is for now, college students. Right. Roofer should not be, or yeah. Fisher, not on yeah. the list.
0: Yeah, fair enough. Okay, well,
1: but do uh, we do we need lobsters that badly? Uh, now I'm feeling guilty if okay. we're talking about do we need football that badly? Do we need lobsters and cod that badly? I, I guess not. It is.
2: I mean, it is true though that when people die in other professions, it doesn't cause a national conversation about it's the true. risk in that Absolutely field. Absolutely true. Yeah.
0: We do need roofs, I think.
2: We do need roofs. We do need
0: roofs. Yeah, okay. Jess. I hope you have something uplifting to end on. That was so jolly. Sorry. <laughs> I
2: do. I do, and it's it's interesting. This is actually. My favorite paper that I have read in a very long time, and it's from PNAS, and it was just published in the last couple of weeks. The title is Cleaner Fish Recognize Self in a Mirror via Self-Face Recognition Like Humans. Wow. And So cleaner, this is quite different. Cleaner? Cleaner fish, which is a particular—I had to look this up. It's a particular oh, oh, it's a kind type of fish. fish. Oh, like, Not the, that, like the clown Yeah, no, it's, they, like a, it's a fish that like sucks parasites off of other fish. Like, okay. um, like yeah. uh, Nemo. I guess— no, not a clownfish. That's a clownfish. A wrasse, that's but a clownfish. they're
1: they're, they're wrasses. They do that. Oh, okay. They, they pick okay. parasites
0: off. Uh,
2: I think that's what, yeah. So this is like a type okay, so of fish. Not, so you know this not type that of fish.
0: The cleaner a fish. If a fish has taken a bath, it's more likely <laughs> no, to recognize no, no. itself, which is funny. what I Literally. interpret. It's like oh, my bath. face cleaner is clean fish. now. Yeah. Yeah, I washed my face. I'm clean. now.
2: So apparently, in evolutionary biology, there is a they they distinguish between animals that can self-identify in a mirror. And those that cannot. Okay. And this is a big test of intelligence. And the question is, does that relate to self-awareness, this kind of internal sense of internal identity? Yeah. You know, And so the way they do this with different animal species is they show the animal like a mirror image of themselves. And then they put some sort of mark on them. And they look to see if the animal tries to remove the mark on its own body. Mm. Mm. So in the sense that like I, rec- I see that image and I realize it's me and I'm going to take it off by like and they put like a dot on the head and they try to like to try to take it be off. off the
1: sticker or something and,
2: be off the sticker. And so there are certain animals that have done this successfully, like dolphins and certain types of whales and certain types of primates. And the cleaner fish <laughs> is now in this list where they did this experiment with. This type of fish, where they, sh- and it was fascinating. And so they're trying to get at, so the cleaner fish could identify itself with a mark on its throat. And so what they did is they showed you have to initiate the awareness in animals that obviously don't have access to a mirror <laughs> to kind of show, okay, this is Fair you, enough. this is you. And so they did a series of experiments with this fish where they showed the fish the mirror and the fish, you know, was kind of looking at the mirror. And then they showed the fish a mirror image of itself with a mark on its throat and the fish tried to remove it from its throat. And then they had two images that they showed the fish, one where they removed the fish's face and put it on the body of another fish and another image (laughs) where they showed an altogether different fish and the fish attacked the different fish, recognizing some, they were claiming recognizing some sense of self in Even in the picture where they superimposed the fish's face on the body of another fish, and then they did a series of—so they did a series of experiments involving both mirror self-recognition and also photographic recognition. I thought this was fabulous— and what they are the bigger point of this research, which they're now saying should be extended to all other different types of animal species, is the idea of does this self recognition involve self awareness mm-hmm. and, and and kind of the origins of of identity and of awareness of self and kind of talking about that there's, there's these different components of self-awareness. There's self-awareness of your body, and that's maybe the first level. And then there's kind of self-awareness of your soul and your thoughts and your interactions with other members of your species. And so they were pushing pushing that It was not just bodily self-awareness, but it was kind of going into this internal self-awareness, kind of they call it intimate self-awareness or introspective self-awareness in fish. And so really challenging the idea that humans are the only species that are capable of this sort of awareness of self. And they also made a point at the end of the article that these tests where they put an animal in front of a a mirror with some sort of mark, like they say, this is you, and then this is you with a mark, and to see if they remove the mark, that it's dependent on, obviously, the capacity of the animal to remove the mark. Right. And so not all animals have hands that can, or legs that can, you know, and so they were making the point that they needed to redo some of these earlier experiments in a way— where they could tell if the animal actually, you know, could remove the mark, yeah. because they were saying some of the, you know, the dot study isn't appropriate, but it has been used to determine which are the animals that have this oh, higher level so sense of self. We
0: itself. need new self anyway, awareness tests. I, I recommend for ants. this
2: was. A great paper oh, no, in the arms. anthropology space in yeah. PNAS, and so it's mm. by it's by a group of Japanese authors. Koda at all in Osaka. It's, it, was, it was cool. it was brilliant. So Very if anyone cool. has a few minutes, take cool. a look. Yeah, yeah, I that's, yeah. that's cool.
0: that one to read. All right. Well, that is the end of our program. If you've got any feedback on this or any other episode, or you want to suggest a study or a topic for us to take on, you can always find us on the Population Health Exchange website at www.pophealthex.org. Somebody pointed out the other day that saying www is much longer than saying World Wide Web. Yes. Yeah. Because W, three vowels, w, three w syllables. versus world. It's also, and then you just sound web.
2: like www. It's just it's hard to say in an, yeah. any so kind three of syllables. professional at, <laughs> way. So you
0: can find it at World Wide Web <laughs> Pop health, ex. Org. Just don't type that in.
2: You can just write. <laughs> you can just. Do it.
0: And now I find out from Nick that you don't even need the www. <laughs> just <stop> pop. <laughs> so, dot pop. So yeah, right? just dot. Just start with dot. No. PopLDX.org. You don't even need the www. We want to thank Leslie Talali, an assistant dean of lifelong learning at the BU School of Public friends. Health. I don't want to send people there <laughs> for supporting the podcast, and Nick Guler for sound editing and identifying website names and the. And it's Back to the Future. Back to the knowledge.
2: Future.
0: And Mark Takakchi for editing. Thanks for joining us. We hope you enjoyed it. We hope you'll download our next episode.